epistle lesson for this morning is found in 1 Corinthians. We're reading fun in verse 18 to chapter 5. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power." so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning in this panoramic passage, speaking of your great work on our behalf in Jesus Christ and the claims and demands it makes of us, we ask that you would give us your spirit for understanding. Speak, O Lord. For your servants are listening. Amen. I was young and green in the pastorate and received an email from a new member of our congregation. He and his wife had just gotten married and they had joined the church and become a part of things and he was requesting to, to go to lunch and I assumed that it was most likely to, to discuss his young marriage. I was surprised though. He said, Chuck, we've decided to, to leave the church. This was curious, and so I said, well, let's talk about it. Can you explain what's, what's going on? He said, well, for some number of years, my wife, Courtney, and I, we've, we've been reading some books. And I said, well, what books are those? And I said, well, one of them was called Rome Sweet Home, and one of them was about the authentic path of discipleship and where the true church lies. And so we've decided actually not to become Roman Catholic, but we're looking for something more authentic more like church in the first century. And so we've decided to join another body that has ancient roots that go all the way back to the first century. We need something authentic for our faith. We want it to look like the first century. And it's easy, isn't it, to get disenchanted with church, to want something that 
perhaps looks more authentic. I think we can all understand that. And it's easy to say, well, if it, it would all just be better if things were like they were in the first century. It's interesting when you begin to read a book like Corinthians, you see that even the Apostle Paul couldn't start and plant and water a perfect church. Rather than solving all the problems, the gospel seems rather to stir them up. That in Corinth, what we have is not a perfectly authentic and healed place, but rather as the preaching of the gospel is declared, as the gospel announcement is proclaimed, the resurrection of Jesus is made known, the, gospel, the community gathers around that declaration, and it gathers with all of its compromises. It gathers with all of its contradictions. It gathers with all of its concessions. That's what the church is, a group of sinners who God declares to be saints through Jesus Christ and where God is then faithfully working out. But it is far from a place where we can expect everything to be perfect and good and for there not to be conflict and all kinds of compromises and all manner of things to work through. This is what we learn in Corinth. It's a tremendously gifted place and it's a tremendously compromised place. Consider what's going on once again across these 16 chapters. It's important to take it all in. That there are divisions based on boasting amongst different leaders in the congregation. That there was a rugged individualism amongst those leaders in which they were using their gifts to gain advantage and to get ahead. There was sexual immorality that was tolerated and accepted amongst them. It wasn't considered wrong. There were disputes between members in the Roman courts. Husbands and wives were being unfaithful to one another in marriage in various ways. Members were eating sacred meals, sacrificed to false gods in the temples. There were class divisions between the rich and the poor, and then some were even getting drunk when they took communion. There were worship wars in chapter 14, you find out, that they were having arguments about what should be done and who should get to do it. And then there were people teaching that the resurrection from the dead had already happened and that there was no future resurrection. To top it all off, they don't seem incredibly concerned, but rather were vying for who was right in all of this. Corinth is a hot mess, and it's a church, and we've seen that Paul then addresses that church. Some of us would think, well, he just needed to start over, to go back to Corinth and, and plant again, that this is just simply too compromised. But rather than shaming them and calling them knuckleheads, Paul writes them a letter, and he reminds them of who they are. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus. He reminds them of their true identity, that they are those set apart by the work of God in Jesus through his death and resurrection, that they are now God's and that they are secure in Him. And He calls them to walk in accord with that high calling that's been placed upon their lives. And then He turns and gives thanks for them. These were people who were critiquing and criticizing Him, and He thanks God for them. And we find a completely different style of leadership. Rather than shaming and guilting them, Paul engages them with the grace of God. And then, of course, He will also speak frankly to them. 
that because of that grace, because they've been accepted by God, that he will now lodge his critique. He will lodge his concerns with this congregation as to what is deficient in them. And so when we arrive here at this second half of chapter 1, what we find is Paul is now turning into the key problems. We're hitting now into the heart issues of what was really happening. And this is what was happening in Corinth, is that there was a mistaken evaluation of their sinful knowledge, and there's a mistaken evaluation of human sinful ability, and that this is what happens in the church that we can very easily mistake our sinful knowledge, and we can think too much of it, and we can mistake our sinful ability. We can think too much of it. And there's three things specifically that Paul is going to call us to reject, to resist, and to renounce that we have to own in order to be that body set apart and sanctified by God in Christ Jesus as we attempt to faithfully serve Him. The first of these is found in verses 18 through 25, but we see that we must reject all human synthetic accounts of the gospel. If you follow with me in verse 21, Paul is speaking about the wisdom that has taken up residence in the Corinthian congregation. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. We've spoken about the Corinthian problem with wisdom, and it's essential that we understand that. That wisdom referred to the Greco-Roman philosophy that has two parts to it. The first part is that there's some kind of secret knowledge that can be had. And so through certain types of learning, you could rise up to wisdom. And so the Corinthian church seems to have imported this and made a synthesis. That is just to bring two things together. That they brought this wisdom of Greco-Roman philosophy in with the gospel. And that there was some further knowledge that could be gained. And this is why certain leaders and teachers in the church became so important. Because they were claiming to have something that everybody needed. And so this is the first part of Greco-Roman wisdom. Now the second piece to this wisdom is that not only was it some secret knowledge that you needed to gain from the guru, but it was also expressed in a certain way that it was valued because of the rhetorical ability of the leader. And this may not exactly ring with us, but in the Greco-Roman world, this was all important. So this secret revealed knowledge and then the way that it was said that the Corinthians had imported that into the church. And so they mixed this wisdom with the gospel. And Paul addresses them and says that that synthetic account of the gospel where you have brought your culture into the church cannot be accepted, that it must be rejected. He says that the world did not come to know God through its wisdom. That all the wisdom that you value in the secret knowledge and in the rhetorical abilities, that that doesn't deliver you to God. That it doesn't get you there. It can't get you there. And then he demonstrates in these verses what it is that gets us there. Follow along at the end of 21. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. How does God reveal Himself? It's not through us attaining knowledge and working from our first principles as to what makes sense to us, but rather God condescends, God reveals Himself, and He does so through the most humiliating of forms possible, through a cross. In the first century, it would have been remarkable to think that churches today would be known for having crosses in them, because a cross was an utter sign of human degradation and of being conquered. And Paul, rather than being ashamed of it, delights in it. That this is the wisdom of God in display. When Christ takes on human sin and brings the old world to an end, because then he rises again. But he says, this is our knowledge. And then he will turn to actually say, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you want to be wise? Know the cross. Don't bring in your synthetic accounts as to what your knowledge and learning indicates the wisdom of God should look like. That only God can make God's self known. Only God can reveal who He is. And the way that God has spoken is in the cross of Jesus. And so Paul quotes from Isaiah 29. It's in in, uh, verses 13 and 14 in that chapter. You find it in verse 19 here. And he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And what's interesting, if you look back in Isaiah at the context of what's being said, is that this is a prophetic oracle spoken to Judah, the southern kingdom. And they were on the verge of being attacked by the Babylonian kingdom. And so the religious and political leaders concocted a plan to save themselves. And they said, we're actually going to form a political alliance with Egypt, Forget all that stuff about being rescued from Egypt. We're going to put ourselves back under Egypt because Egypt will save us. Isaiah told them not to do it, that this was against God's will. And he was calling out to them not to boast in those plans, not to boast in their wisdom, that God was going to destroy such wisdom. But you can see the appeal, can't you? It made sense to them. It was rational. It was reasonable. Why not do that? Why not invest yourself in that plan and strategy? And friends, this is what Paul is critiquing, is that there are things inside of our culture that seem reasonable to us, that seem to be the way, that things that we should just accept. And of course, we should just synthesize those with the gospel and make better sense of it. And he's saying that we must resist that. We must reject it. That the wisdom of God must be revealed. And it's revealed in the cross of Jesus Christ. So God topples the wisdom of the wise and he saves those who trust in his power and wisdom that's revealed in Christ's suffering. This is what it means to be wise. The second piece of what Paul is doing here, though, in verses 26 through 31 We see that we must renounce all forms of human self-assertion. At first, there's something that we have to reject about human knowledge. We also have to renounce all forms of human self-assertion or human boasting. You see where he concludes this paragraph. He says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. A famous verse from the Old Testament that he quotes here, Jeremiah 9 verse 24. And this is what Paul has in his sights now. 
after he moves from saying no, that we must have God reveal himself to us, and that revelation takes place in the cross of Jesus Christ, that this is the wisdom of God. Now he is going to turn on the Corinthians and say in the same way that God must do everything to reveal himself to you, you must resist every attempt to gain a foothold in standing with God. You see, the Corinthians had become somewhat arrogant. In their newfound wisdom and knowledge, Paul explains to us throughout the letter that they were puffed up. They thought more of themselves than they should have. So what does he do? Verse 26, consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. He says, look, you need to remember where you came from. This, you're not all that hot, really. Many of you were not well-born. Many of you were not wise. Many of you were not wealthy. So you didn't have power according to worldly standards. Then he turns in verse 27, but God chose. God chose the foolish. God chose the weak. God chose those who are not well-born, and he brings them into his family. And of course, he's also saying that this congregation was not just made up of those. He said, not many of you, but some of them were. And we know that there were some who had extreme means in the Corinthian congregation. They owned houses where these churches met. We even have inscriptions of a man who paid for a road who was part of this congregation. There were means there. And this is the point why was this particular group of up and in, along with the down and out, why were they all together in one household of faith? You find it in verse 30. And because of him, that's because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. That's why this group who had really nothing socially in common People all across the spectrum who came from different backgrounds, and they were even different ethnicities, and here they are worshiping God together. Why is that? It's because of this humbling statement, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And Paul is saying that takes away all room for boasting. It should absolutely humble everybody in the room, that statement that because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. And at the same time that it humbles you, it should also dignify you because God has done something for you that you can't do for yourself. And so two things to affirm here. The first is that God initiates with us personally, that salvation is not our idea. Look in verses 27 and 28, just the repetition. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That this is the great mystery of salvation. We affirm that God must initiate with us, that God must move in us, that it is God's decision and God's choice, the priority of His grace intersecting our lives and intervening, drawing us to Himself, that otherwise we wouldn't make that choice, that salvation isn't our idea. Second thing that he affirms here, it's not only does God initiate the salvation with us, but the salvation is accomplished by Jesus and Jesus alone. 
that we do nothing to spritzer it up and to add to it or to improve on it. It doesn't involve us at all. And this is what he says in verse 30, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. You want wisdom, Paul asked? Well, here's the wisdom that has come from God. Righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. These are the gifts of the benefits of our salvation. And that that comes to us in and through Jesus Christ and what he does by dying on our behalf and rising from the dead. That we are counted to be right with God. That we are set apart now for God. That we will be redeemed by God when he raises our bodies from the dead. Friends, this removes all ground for boasting that we can possibly create. This salvation's not our idea. It's not something that we came up with and worked our way towards. We can't claim anything there, and we can't claim anything in its accomplishment. That it's done by God on our behalf through Jesus, that he saves us, he sustains us, he secures us. That you got nothing, but you have everything because you have Jesus. And the Corinthians and all their puffed upness, we're missing this. And we can miss it easily too. The final piece of this, in verses one through five, we see that we must resist unhealthy forms of human agency. Last week we saw that the divisions that were taking place in the Corinthian congregation, they were being attributed to men like Paul and Apollos and Peter. And people were forming parties inside the church, even though those apostles and preachers didn't agree with them. But people were rallying around different local leaders who were allying themselves supposedly with Paul or supposedly with Apollos. And so the congregation was all torn up. Paul takes a moment, a very candid moment, to remind them of how they actually converted, how they ever got involved in this Jesus thing in the first place. He says, and when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul was a very learned man, we know. He reflects that in his letters, but we also learn from the Bible itself that Paul was not the most uh, rhetorically gifted there were others who exceeded him in that. He says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul most likely on these missionary journeys, we know that he'd been beaten several times and was not in great physical shape. He was also an older man at this point, and his body was bearing those marks. He was scarred by his service to Jesus, and it was impacting him. He could feel his weakness, and he was under threats. There were Jews chasing him all around the Mediterranean coast that he traveled as he preached the gospel. They wanted him put to death. The one who had once been on their side, been an ally, had turned against them, and was now preaching Jesus. Paul was in all kinds of weakness. He says, look, I didn't come to you with plausible words of wisdom. You heard those sermons. I came to you preaching Christ and preaching Christ crucified. That is your home. That is where you were converted. And now you're lost in rhetorical gifts, and you have people saying that the resurrection hasn't, has already happened and that there is no resurrection to be had. You have doctrinal heresy going on, but you're just pleased because they said it nicely. 
Paul's saying, no, we preach Christ, and we preach Christ crucified. And what had happened in Corinth is that they were too focused on the messengers over the message. They'd gotten lost in an unhealthy form of human agency, and it was tearing up the congregation. You see, what's important to affirm is that the messenger really isn't that important. God does send and appoint messengers. If you look in chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul asks the question, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. And so does God use human beings in accomplishing the salvation of individuals that God chooses and elects? Yes, he does. But look what Paul then goes on to say. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, But what? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And this was Paul's sober, mature reflection where he didn't have himself caught up too much in this business of of what God was doing in the world. He was simply preaching the gospel. He was consumed with that. But then he knew God would accomplish his ends as his word went out. And so that meant that he could separate himself from this, that it wasn't about him. But in Corinth, they were attaching to the messengers, and they needed to recognize it was the message, and it was the power of that message that carries the powers of new creation, that as the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed in his death and resurrection, the cancellation of sins and the hope of the world to come, that that is the power and the wisdom of God at work. And that's what creates the church. That's the center of its substance. When I was young in college ministry, just after I graduated, I was serving at Presbyterian College, and I had just moved into a home and was settling myself in this little small town and getting to know students. And one student came up to me that first year, and he introduced himself. He said, my name is David Reidenhauer, and I'm here to help you. He was all of a hot 18, and I was all of a hot 22, but you can imagine uh, the battle of the pride and will that began to unfold at that moment, that he was here to help me. There was more truth to that than I ever will understand. But David said, Chuck, I like to speak, and I am part of a Baptist congregation. Last time I preached, there were 16 rededications and four conversions. And then very famously, he said, that's the kind of work I do. (laughs) The wonderful humor of the whole situation is that David Reidenhauer just texted me the other day and said, are you going to General Assembly? I would love to see you, because David Reidenhauer is now a Presbyterian minister. Um, And so we love to laugh about the story. (laughs) But isn't it the case? We can get lost in our own success. We can begin to to appreciate and believe too much the applause that is around us. And we can begin to take that to our head and we get an inappropriate notion of human agency. Because it's God is the one who does the work. And there's a mystery there as to God's election and God's working that out. But simply our part is to go water and plant and to work the field, to till it. That is our part. John Newton great slave trader who became a preacher in the Church of England. He corresponded with many people. One of those was Thomas Jones. He was a fellow pastor. 
And Newton writes to him, he says, as to myself, if I was not a Calvinist, I think I should have no more hope of success in preaching to men than to horses or cows. <laughs> Jones was not a Calvinist, had many questions about it. And Newton writes him a wonderfully warm letter where he says, you know, our part when it comes to the revelation of God is to affirm what the Bible affirms. We're not going to figure out all the mysteries of God, Thomas. We can't understand all of these things, but I know one thing about myself and one thing about sinners is that we're too hardened to the things of God to want to hear them inside of our own desire and capacities, that God must break up that hard ground. And that's why he says, if he were not a Calvinist, he would have more fortune ministering to cows or horses, because it's God alone that can open the heart. Paul knew that. And he knew that this congregation needed to understand it so that they would be unified, so that they would quit their bickering and their dividing themselves up and creating parties around these different leaders. Corinth was being torn up by a mistaken evaluation of sinful human knowledge, creating a synthesis of the gospel with their culture, importing things into the gospel, and also a mistaken evaluation of sinful human ability. They were boasting in things that God does not allow us to boast in. That we are to boast in the Lord Jesus. That is what we glory in. That is where we find our confidence. That He is everything for us. Hear these words once again. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let him be your boast. Then a congregation knows real authenticity. It can deal with its sins and its failures. Then a congregation can put to death some of its divisions and the things that tear it up. But until those things have been leveled, we'll live with them. And so Paul is undoing what was so backwards in Corinth, patiently working with them, graciously calling them to boast in Jesus and Jesus alone. Make that your boast. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, we recognize the ways that we can mess this up as well. That we bring our sins and we import all kinds of cultural values as well. We ask that you would help us to resist, to reject, and to renounce these things, and that we would boast in Jesus. We're weak, and we need your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.